So I want to share some breaking news with you. Technology is everywhere. Not really breaking news. That might be the most uh, or the least controversial statement you'll hear all day from anybody, but technology is everywhere. Maybe a, a less, slightly less Captain Obvious kind of statement about technology is that technology is everywhere and it is significantly impacting our lives, right? I think hopefully we can all sort of agree on that. Uh, and many of, the, many of you, though, actually are working on or have worked on some of the technology that's actually impacting our lives for good in a lot of ways. And some of you have even helped sort of lay the foundation of some of the technology that we're still uh, using and, and are impacting our lives for good. Um, technology makes our lives more productive, more efficient, uh, provides some convenience, and it can connect us with people. But with that said, I want to share a little bit of an illustration of something that I think is going to be sort of a little bit of a frame of reference for our talks over these next two weeks as we talk about soul care and talking about how to care for our soul, but also the impact of technology on our souls. Uh, you probably know that the, one of the incredible technological advancements that the Roman Empire brought to us was they basically got water sort of everywhere they wanted to through aqueducts. Uh, but you might not know, you might not know, and really I didn't know until just recently, is that some of the aqueduct system that they had used lead pipes. Lead pipes, like we think like lead pipes, that doesn't make any sense, like how could they use lead pipes? Now there's some debate about how much the lead pipes uh, actually impacted the Roman Empire. Some people think it might have contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, but whatever the case is, common sense would say the lead pipe system that they set up of, of moving water around probably had some sort of impact on the people and their health, right? And this huge advancement in technology of bringing water to the cities from other places and to the people where they needed it to be, uh, they were using lead pipes. And while that is a magnificent leap of technology to get to the people something that's very helpful, that would also have been slowly poisoning the same people at the same time. And while this is a magnificent leap of technology in our lives and it brings so much help to us and helps make our lives more productive, our use of it might be slowly poisoning our souls if we're not careful. Now, uh, just like the aqueduct technology that the Romans uh, uh, implemented and, and developed, uh, it's not necessarily inherently bad in of itself. In fact, it's very magnificent and beautiful. It's amazing how they were able to do that. And from our perspective, looking back, we say, oh yeah, they needed to make some tweaks, namely don't use lead in your pipes, right? That was kind of the thing. And so the same thing might be true of how we look at technology in 20 years. The next generations after us look at how we use technology and they might say, yeah, you probably needed to make some tweaks in how you use the technology that you have. So before we kind of get into that a little bit more, let me just reiterate uh, sort of my perspective. And I think it's sort of our church's perspective about technology because I'm not here to bash technology. That's not the purpose of it. Uh, because really our position is the technology is not the problem. Our use of technology is the problem. Now, there might be problems with particular technology, right? We can all think of an example of like, there's a particular technology that, yeah, there's just some problems with that. That's inherently got some issues with it. But in general, we're, we're not really anti-technology. In fact, we're live streaming right now our service. We use the Bible app on our phones. We use lots of different technology and there's good things about it. Um, previously, we've also sort of talked about some guidelines for how to use technology. We did a series called Owned, where we sort of talked about some, some guidelines for how to use technology uh, from the scriptures. There's actually some ways that there's some principles that you can tr transfer over to how we should use technology. And then last year, we also looked at some, some guidelines, some forgotten guidelines at times, for how to have relationships online. Because those relationships online, while they're still relationships, there's some differences with some technology and the use of, of being online. And so as we continue this Soul Series today, Soul Care Series, 
series today, um, we're going to sort of be talking about this use of how we use technology and how it impacts our soul. Uh, through this series, basically, we've been taking some time to, to care for our souls. It's not a, not a difficult uh, topic to figure out or description of this, this series to talk about. Basically, we've been taking some time to talk about our souls. And, and basically, if you're, not new, if you're new or you're not so sure about Jesus or you're still figuring that whole thing out, hopefully this series doesn't feel alienating to you. This is actually sort of a behind-the-scenes look at the importance of our souls and how we can sort of make our souls healthy, or if we're not careful, we can make our souls unhealthy. And we're doing this series right now because I think, and I think many of you think, that there's no way that in the environment we've been in these last few years, there's no way that our souls haven't been impacted. Our souls have been impacted by all the things. You could list basically anything in the last two years, and our souls have been impacted in one way or another. Whether it's been the circumstances that's, that's happened in these last few years, or maybe it's something completely unrelated to the pandemic, or maybe it's just something else entirely, something you grew up with. Many of us might answer the question, how is our soul? And we might answer it with some exhaustion or some tiredness, some weariness, and maybe just some grief along the way. And to get us sort of all on the same page, though, to make sure we understand what soul is and what we're talking about when we say soul, basically our souls are sort of the center of who we are as people. It's the core of who we are as people, which, if true, would make caring for our souls significantly important to who we are as people in every little aspect of our lives. Um, Dallas Willard, a famous theologian, says this, Our soul is like an inner stream of water which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other element of our lives. Our souls are the center of who we are are. Uh, last couple weeks, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Ke- uh, Kevin, I'm sorry, I almost combined your name to say Kim. Kevin and Tim, uh, Pastor Tim, uh, shared with us last week, uh, last couple weeks, and they helped fill in for me, and I'm very grateful for that. But basically, they shared some questions and some sort of context for how to care for our souls. And Tim, last week, Pastor Tim shared sort of an example of a way to sort of practice caring for your soul using Psalm 16. So again, thank you, Kevin and Tim, for doing that. Um, today, though, we're going to, again, continue to talk about technology. And I think technology and our use of technology uh, is a bit more like a flowing river rather than a stagnant body of water. Now, I have a really painful story to share about stagnant bodies of water and the impact they can have on you, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. That's maybe for another time. Uh, the story I want to share with you today is actually about the flowing river aspect. Um, when my kids were about two and four years old, we took them on their very first camping trip, uh, our first camping trip as a family together, uh, which was interesting, but a lot of fun. We went to Big Sur, and if you haven't been to Big Sur to go camping, it's just a beautiful area to go camping. But we went there, we went camping, and um, I took Brayden, my oldest, to a river uh, that was just nearby, the Big Sur River, which was just right across from our campground, our campsite. And we were just going to sort of go walk in the river and, and look for creatures. And, and Brayden, that's where we found the crab, right? Okay, just want to make sure, I forgot to check with him. We found a little crab there. It was just a lot of fun. But as we walked into the river, almost immediately when we walked into the river, I realized really quickly this water is moving pretty swiftly. Uh, it's moving pretty fast. And part of the reason I noticed that was because I was just wearing flip-flop sandals. And that was not necessarily the greatest choice of footwear. Um, but I also noticed the water moving and, and I noticed the rocks on the bottom <laughs> because my feet were constantly bumping up against them and stubbing toes and all that stuff. Uh, my son Braden, however, my wife is good about this. She got water shoes for him and so he was able to walk around pretty easily. But I think Braden realized pretty quickly that if he didn't hold on to my hand, he could very easily drift away from me because the current of the water was very strong and it was just kind of moving him uh, in one direction. And in most parts of our life, particularly when it comes to technology, being passive leads to drifting. If we're just sort of passive and sort of neutral, and we don't really take a stance or we don't sort of resist or move towards something or move away from something, if we're not actively involved in it, 
it can lead us to drifting in our lives because the current of culture is moving us in a direction. Now, we might disagree on whether it's moving us towards good or bad, or you know, certain aspects might be moving us towards good or bad, or sort of pushing us in that direction. But if we're just sort of passive, we're going to end up somewhere in this world and in this life, and our soul is gonna end up somewhere. And being passive will lead us to drifting somewhere and in some direction. And I'm not sure if you've thought about this lately, um, but if we are passive in relationships, we will naturally drift toward disconnection and loneliness. If we're sort of just passive and just sort of let relationships happen, most of the time we're gonna naturally drift towards disconnection and loneliness. Now, it probably wouldn't take very long for most of us if we looked at our friends list from high school, or maybe you looked at your friends list from college, and you realize, yeah, you sort of just naturally drift apart or drift towards disconnection and loneliness. Now, if you've been intentional and you've not been passive about keeping relationships with specific people that you wanted to, you, you probably have some relationships from high school or from college even. But you had to be intentional about it. If you're just sort of passive, the relationships just sort of drifts away. Maybe some of you can think about uh, family relationships or friend relationships that you just sort of had cousins or, or maybe even your kids or maybe your parents or, or aunts and uncles that you just sort of didn't, you weren't intentional about it and you're just sort of passive and eventually you sort of drifted apart. Uh, taking this one step further, if we're passive in relationships, we will naturally drift toward disconnection and loneliness. Again, moving towards that direction of loneliness. We'll just sort of drift away from each other. And even though we have all the technology that we have that claims, and, and sometimes rightly so, claims to help us to be connected, we might be one of the most connected generations ever, we are experiencing loneliness in a staggering rate of people around us. Uh, many of us in our relationships are sort of passive and we sort of drifted into uh, difficulty or we've drifted into habits or we've drifted into loneliness. And so today we're going to take a look at, at possibly, there's probably a few people that could get this title, but possibly one of the loneliest and most disconnected people in the scriptures. And his name is Zacchaeus. That's the one we're going to look at today. There's probably others that we could classify as that. But many people have heard the story of Zacchaeus. In fact, we've looked at the story of Zacchaeus recently. But today I want to ask us to sort of look at the scriptures and look at this story of Zacchaeus, particularly through the lens that Zacchaeus drifted into isolation. He drifted into loneliness and he was very disconnected. So we're going to start off in Luke chapter 19. If you want to follow along in the Bible app, again, we're not against technology. You can use your phone for the Bible app. Um, you might feel a little guilty if you don't use it for the Bible app and use it for something else, but we'll get to that in a little bit, and that's not my purpose. But we'd love for you to follow along with us. We'll also have the verses on the screen as well. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse, or Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, says this, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. So sort of setting the stage, Jericho, if you don't know, was a rather affluent city that had a lot of wealthy people, a lot of people desired to live in this city. And uh, it was part of the reason people desired to live there was because it was wealthy. And sort of like being in that area sort of would give you some status and some opportunity probably. Verse two, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't just any tax collector. There was sort of a level, a tier system of tax collectors. He was the chief tax collector in the region. So that meant he had other tax collectors t collecting the taxes and sort of reporting to him. And he would oversee all of them. And they were collecting large amounts of money. And so he was very rich, but he's also a Jew. And in this culture, the Jewish culture, the tax collectors were sort of looked down upon. They were the worst of the worst. And they were sort of seen as super corrupt because they were actually pretty corrupt most of the time. And if you were a Jewish tax collector, you were a Jewish person collecting taxes for Rome, 
you were sort of known as the ultimate traitor because you were betraying your own people. You were taking money from the Jewish people and not just giving it to Rome. That's not what Zacchaeus did. He took money from the Jewish people and then he took a little bit off the top as a Jew. He was taking from his own people. He was becoming an oppressor to his own people. He was being the oppressor against his own people. Uh, verse 3, he tried to, uh, Zacchaeus tried to look at Jesus, to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Now, there's a couple things happening that we need to know. Um, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he has a couple problems. Number one is obviously he's short, right? But that's not the only problem. We've talked about this before. If he was just short, like little kids in a crowd, you know, eventually people like let them go to the front because they don't hate little kids, right? In our culture, it seems not good to hate little kids, right? That's just sort of the, so we try to help them and move them up towards the front. But in this situation, Zacchaeus is not only short, but he's also hated. And this chief tax collector is sort of, again, he's viewed lower than a sinner. He's lower than an unclean. He's despised. He's a traitor. He's just sort of hated. So what is Zacchaeus going to do? Well, because Zacchaeus is hated, at least partially, uh, or maybe completely due to his actions, his own choices, and his own decisions, um, but because Zacchaeus is hated, he's also desperately alone, probably. Right? I don't know if this is something you've thought about before, but because Zacchaeus was in this position of being one of the lowliest people, even though he had all the wealth, he had all the resources, he could go and buy whatever he wanted to probably at this point. And yet, he's probably very alone. And even the people who work for him, they're only working for him, right? They're not necessarily his friends. They're not people that he can be a close relationship with. He lives around a lot of people in the city of Jericho, and yet he's isolated, He's alone. Nobody really wants to be around him. Nobody's going to help him out. Nobody's going to let him see Jesus because he's this sort of bad person. And this might be where some of us can relate to Zacchaeus, right? Have you ever been in a room full of people and you just didn't feel like you had any friends? Have you ever been around people or, or you sort of knew that there was people around, but you just weren't exactly sure what to say or what to do or where to sit or what to go, where to go, and, and you just didn't feel like you had a close group of people that you could talk to? And you feel all alone even though you're with People And it might be your family, it might be friends, it might be just, but you just feel, sort of feel all alone. A report out of Harvard suggests that 36%, 36%, that's about one in three of all Americans, including, this is even higher for uh, young adults, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with children feel serious loneliness. Now this is sort of just recently, partly because of the pandemic, but also just sort of other things happening. The idea is that actually, I think as, as, as people, we were designed and created for community, but we drift toward loneliness because we're broken people living in a broken world. And we're drifting toward loneliness. In fact, I would say that some, some metrics would say that we're drifting towards loneliness at a faster rate than any other previous generation in some ways. And we have so much at our fingertips, right? And what we find in the story of Zacchaeus that, is that he's not only longing for a relationship, he's longing to see what Jesus is like, he's longing to see something different in his life. And he's been created for that. He's been created for a relationship. He's been created for community. But yet, like him, he also can drift toward loneliness, and so can we. And thankfully, what we see from Zacchaeus is he actually does something about this. He actually takes a step. He takes action. And he does some things that are actually kind of undignified in his culture and in his situation. Verse 4, so he ran ahead, which... We'll get back to, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. And for some reason, we don't know exactly what it was, what sort of prompted Zacchaeus, but something in his life, maybe it was the loneliness, maybe it was just sort of something else, we don't know exactly, but for some reason, Zacchaeus had sort of enough of his situation, enough of his isolation, enough of sort of being seen as the worst person around, 
And he's going to do some things, even some very undignified things. Because in his culture, we've talked about this a little bit before, running as a man in this culture was like, you just didn't do it. There was no reason to run as a man. That was sort of undignified. It just lowered your status even more. And yet Zacchaeus runs to this fig tree. And then the second thing he does is also undignified. You don't climb a tree as a man in this culture. This was not something that you would do. And, there, and there's lots of stories, interestingly, about this in the, in the, in the time period. Where that It just was not something that people would do. And so... Into that context, we see Jesus. Into that context of this man who's running ahead, doing all these undignified things, Jesus is in this context as well. And Jesus was somebody who the religious leaders, the Jewish people, and in general, sort of the Jewish leaders, did not want Jesus to do what he was doing. And they, they sort of were plotting to get rid of him. They were actually plotting to kill him. And, and part of the reason was because he kept hanging out with the wrong people. And, and not only was he hanging out with the wrong people, he wasn't hanging out with the right people either. He wasn't hanging out with them. And so into that situation, into that context, into Zacchaeus' loneliness, verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Verse 6, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. And this is not what a good Jewish rabbi would do in this period of time. And the people and the Jewish religious leaders, they did not like what Jesus was doing. Verse 7, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. The, the people want to keep Zacchaeus isolated. They want to keep him feeling lonely because of his decisions. And yet Jesus steps into that context and he says, I don't want Zacchaeus to be lonely. I'm going to go be with Zacchaeus. I'm going to remind Zacchaeus of some things that hopefully will help bring him towards community. And they would have sort of, the religious leaders and the, the people around Zacchaeus would have rather just left him lonely in that moment. And worse yet, they probably would have left Zacchaeus to feel that he should stay lonely and stay isolated. And yet, it sort of begs the question in this story, what is, who is God like in this, in this situation? Who is God like in this story? Who is like God in this story? Is it God, is God sort of like the religious leaders who, who encourage isolation and encourage loneliness? Or is God more like Jesus, who brings people out of isolation and goes and meets them where they are? Is God someone who can't be around sin? Because Zacchaeus would be a prime example of sin. <laughs> Blatant sin, taking advantage of people, uh, hurting your own, own people, hurting your own family. He was a, a, an example of sin. And yet it seems from this interaction and many others that God can be with sin. God can be around sin. He doesn't have to stay away from it. Because Jesus was the image of the invisible God, and he not only tolerated being around sinners, he would go and seek them out and, and be around them and initiate connection with them. Verse 8, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Now, um, we could talk about forgiveness at some point as sort of an important spiritual act. I think we would all sort of agree that it is some way a spiritual act. But forgiveness is so much more than just a spiritual act that God wants us to forgive people because that's the right thing to do and he, he wants us to. But more than that, it's a step towards community. It's a step towards relationship. And this is where soul care can sort of be different than self-care, which you hear a lot about self-care these days, right? There's, there's some healthy things that we need to do to take care of ourselves. But there's a distinction between soul care and self-care and that soul care pushes you to you know, allow God to help take care of your soul and help repair and heal your soul. Self-care is about ourselves, right? It's focusing on ourselves in a sense. 
And if you're just about self-care, you might never forgive somebody. You might never move towards community because it's just about yourself and preserving yourself. And soul care says, I want to help move you towards, God says, I want to help move you towards community. It's something bigger than that. Not towards loneliness. Verse 9, Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home. He's talking about Zacchaeus' home, where Zacchaeus is and where Jesus is with him. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek, to seek out community, to draw people towards community, and to save those who are lost. And even though Zacchaeus had been drifting towards loneliness and isolation, the work of God through Jesus in his life is moving him to be connected and into community. And so for the remainder of our time together today, uh, I just want to sort of uh, talk about some of the reasons that while we are designed for community, we sort of drift toward isolation and talk about what we can do about that. And the first reason that I want to talk about is that we drift toward loneliness because of our own actions, right? I think we just need to own it up right from the beginning. We drift toward loneliness because of our actions. Now, I don't know anybody that wakes up in the morning and says, I just want to be lonely today. Like, I just want to really feel bad and feel lonely and feel isolated from everybody else. I just want to wake up that way and be that way. Nobody wakes up that way. And yet, at times, if we're honest and we can look at ourselves objectively, our own actions lead us toward loneliness at times, right? Our own actions actually push us in that direction. And I would doubt that Zacchaeus would say that when, you know, when he was a kid and he was growing up, thinking about what he was going to do with his life. And, you know, in those days, he didn't necessarily have those same thoughts that we might have about career. But let's just imagine he did. He wasn't thinking, I want to grow up and, and, and be somebody that's just lonely and isolated because of my career. <laughs> I want to go and be somebody that, that doesn't have any friends and that everybody sort of wants to push away and get away from and, and not be around. He didn't make that choice consciously, maybe. But his own actions led him to a place where he was lonely. And he ended up being very lonely. And so the question for you is, what are you actively doing or what might you actively be doing that could cause you to drift towards loneliness? And and sort of ask God maybe to show you. Maybe there's some things you don't even realize. Maybe it's some social cues. Maybe it's some social skills. Maybe it's something completely different where it's something that you're actively doing and you're participating in. Uh, You're starting political arguments or, you know, there's all kinds of things. People don't necessarily want to be around that stuff sometimes. And that might lead to loneliness as well. And God can maybe show that to you. Uh, The second reason that we're going to talk about, I I want you to hear from me uh, as somebody that's not telling you what you should do. I'm not preaching at you. I'm in this journey along with you, okay? So I'm saying this that I also can work on this next reason as well. The number two, we drift toward loneliness sometimes because of our screen habits. Because of our screen habits. That our screen habits do impact our souls in various different ways. And I think we're only just sort of beginning to scratch the surface of how deep some of this really actually goes. But I'm not just talking to teenagers here. I'm talking to us adults because many times we set the, we set the course for that for our kids, right? So we got to look in the mirror ourselves at first. Um, but I think part of the reason that we, we see that this is impacting us, we see that it's impacting our lives and impacting our souls. We see that Apple and, and other technology companies decide to start like notifying us and letting us know how much time are we actually spending on our phones because it is becoming a problem and what apps we're using and all that kind of thing. And we're starting to see like, oh yeah, this is a lot more than I thought it was. More hours are going by than I thought they were. And our screen habits also impact our in-person relationships, right? It's not just sort of a a thing inside of us. It's also impacting how we interact with other people. Uh, We don't have to look very far to see people sitting at a dining room table, whether that's in a restaurant or at home, 
and nobody's looking at each other because everybody's on their phone scrolling, right? You go to restaurants, you see that. You probably go in your house and see that, right? Uh, you also don't need to look very far to just seeing people in cars. And this is becoming an interesting thing I've noticed, and I'm not innocent of it either. We just sit in our cars and scroll at times, right? You just get in the car from the store, or you just get in the car from something, and you're just like, oh, I need to check something. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, what am I doing? I'm just sitting in the car. Uh, we also don't need to look very far to, if you watch sports like I do, uh, baseball games, you see people like, they're just on their phone, and all of a sudden, they get whacked with a foul ball because they're not paying attention to what's going on around them, right? And people walking on the streets, they don't realize cars are coming, all this different thing. Uh, basically, anytime we're in sort of a transition from one thing to another, from one environment to another, from one relationship to another, uh, there's sort of this urge inside of all of us, I think, now. We've got to check our phone. We've got to check what's going on, check what's going on in technology. We might miss opportunities. And sometimes we miss opportunities to actually connect with other people because we just quickly go back to our phones. Uh, author Margaret uh, Heffernan says this, the cell phone has become the adult's transitional object replacing the toddler's teddy bear for comfort and a sense of belonging. Now, that's not necessarily to knock any of that. We need some comforting things in our life to help us to transition, and some of us more than others. That's not to knock it, but I think it's a reality that we have to look at. That Our phones have become this thing for us that's sort of like a teddy bear. It's sort of this thing that we just sort of default to. It's a comfortable item for us, and many times we don't even necessarily read it or realize it, that our screen habits can lead us drifting towards loneliness. So a question. Has your phone or has your screen use possibly contributed to your loneliness and isolation? And what can you do about your screen habits? What screen habits might you need to change? And what habits might you need to first just maybe observe in yourself, right? Because if you don't even know you're doing it, it's kind of hard to change it. But maybe you need to sort of take a log and a journal of how much time you actually spend or use that part of your, your phone where it tells you the activity and how much time you actually spent and look at what are you actually doing? What are your actual habits with screens, because we all have habits with screens, and some of ours, I'd say maybe most, or if not all of ours, have some unhealthy characteristics to them, and they push us, and they lead us to drifting towards isolation and loneliness. Okay, number three, the third reason. We drift toward loneliness because of our inaction at times, because we don't actually take the step towards doing something. We just sort of, again, passively move towards something. Uh, again, I don't know that anybody wakes up and says, I want to be lonely today, but sometimes our lack of action also leads us and pushes us in that direction. Um, I do have other stories that don't involve rivers, but this next story also involves a river. It involves the Des Moines River, actually. Um, when I, was, I went to college in Iowa, and during one summer, we were um, just sort of a hot summer day. We decided to go to this river uh, to just go float down the river, actually. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a pretty relaxing thing to do, and sort of now in this day and age, we can sort of disconnect from technology maybe for a little bit and float down the river. Anyhow, we were going to go do that, but before we did, we saw that this place that we were going to start had this awesome tree swing this rope swing that would swing out. You know, you grab the pole, uh, grab the rope, you jump on the little seat, this little disc thing, you jump on the seat and you swing down the shore and then you get out over the water and as you're at the peak, before you start coming back, you just sort of let go, jump off and fall into the water. Now, you gotta make sure that the water's deep enough before, so don't like just go do this in any river. You gotta make sure it's deep enough that you're not gonna hit, all that kind of stuff, you gotta be safe. But as college students, we were doing this and we decided to go, uh, you know, use this rope swing before we flowed down the river. And it was going great, it was having a lot of fun until my friend Cleet got the rope swing. Now, um, Cleet was a fun guy, he was uh, super intelligent, had lots of great conversations with Cleet, 
But he wasn't necessarily somebody that you would say was super coordinated with his body. <laughs> um, and there was a few different things about that that were kind of funny. But this story in particular was not necessarily funny. It was actually very painful. Um, Cleet grabbed the rope, walked up the shore, and got to the highest point that he could, and still holding onto the rope, uh, got the rope and jumped onto the seat and started swinging back over the shore and out into the water. And as he gets out of, you know, at the peak of the, the swing and he's over the water, um, we all realize that the rope is wrapped around his leg twice and he's about ready to let go. And you know, at that point, you really can't do a whole lot. You know, your, your reaction time, all that stuff. All of a sudden, Cleet lets go and jumps off the rope and is gonna fall down towards the water and he starts falling, but then the rope catches his weight on that leg. And he's just dangling there for a split second, only being held on by the tension of the rope and the, 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 um, the tension on his leg. And all of a sudden, eventually, you know, it sort of unravels real quick and he drops down into the water. He came out of the water with the worst rope burn I've ever seen in my life. It was a big rope, too. And I mean, he had this scar or this, this rope burn for weeks on end. Uh, and he probably still has a scar to this day. Uh, because he couldn't take action fast enough or he didn't take any action to sort of remove that rope and look down and see that the rope was around his leg first off. And I don't know that any of us really even thought about looking down and making sure the rope wasn't wrapped around our leg. His inaction led to some very painful consequences. And in our lives, sometimes our inaction can lead to painful consequences as well. So if you don't take action to change some of your screen habits, you might end up with some painful consequences and they might not show up right away. That's sort of the problem, right? They don't show up right away, but eventually you realize that you haven't talked to your kids in a while or you haven't seen your parents in a while or you haven't engaged with anybody that's not on a screen in a while. All of a sudden you say, I'm feeling a little bit lonely. We can take some action towards that, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, so number one, we drift toward loneliness because of our actions. We drift toward loneliness because of our screen habits. Number three, we drift toward loneliness because of our inaction. And then number four, two more left. We drift toward loneliness because of our shame. And some of us have drifted toward loneliness because we know and are very aware of our past. We're very aware of the things that we've done that have not been good. And we don't feel worthy. We don't feel like we should do some certain things. We don't feel like we necessarily deserve to be around people at times. And many times this leads us to withdrawing from God. We think that we can't be near God. We also withdraw from others. We feel we're too broken, too messy. And so we just pull away from God and from other people. And one of the interesting things about sin and sort of any action that we take that is contrary to what God wants it sort of comes pre-packaged with this isolation thing inside of it. That, you know, you sort of do that thing and you, you sort of do that thing that you want to keep secrets from people, right? You, you eventually sort of isolate yourself from other people. You want to hide the truth. You want to avoid that person that you hurt. And the, the sin sort of comes pre-packaged with these consequences at times. We think we can sort of avoid them and get away from them. But there's sort of this thing that even if you aren't isolating yourself from people initially, it sort of turns your heart towards yourself and, and away from other people. And so some of you, I would ask the question, do you have some sin that you need to confess to God? Now, it's not because God doesn't know your sin. God already knows your sin. But confessing your sin is a step towards community. It's a step towards relationship with God, first off. But it also is a step towards relationship with other people, maybe fixing that thing in your life. It's a step back towards relationship and community. And God longs for a relationship with you, and He also wants relationship you to be in relationship with other people. And He doesn't want anything to break that relationship. And that's sort of what sin is. It's something that breaks that relationship in that community. 
So number five, last one. We drift toward loneliness because of our hurt, which is maybe sort of similar to the shame, but maybe it's more something that somebody's done to us, right? Somebody's hurt us, and so we're not going to be hurt again by them, and so we just sort of, you know, drift away from them. We sort of move away from them. We move in the opposite direction. We don't want anybody to hurt us again, and so we decide that we're going to sort of take a different route. And some of us don't even make this decision consciously, but when people hurt us, we sort of naturally withdraw and retreat. And we look back and say, well, yeah, since that moment happened, since that person did that thing to me and I got hurt, I probably haven't taken any active steps towards community. I've actually taken opposite steps away from community. And that's not to say some of that's healthy at times, but if we're not careful, we can continue to drift away from community and relationship and into isolation and into loneliness. Some of us have been hurt by friends and family. Unfortunately, some of us have been hurt by the church. Maybe not this church, maybe this church, but maybe just the church, other churches, maybe the church you grew up in, maybe other followers of Jesus. But when we pull away from relationships, it can lead us towards further isolation and further loneliness in our lives. So if you are lonely, if you've felt lonely, is it because of your actions? Is it because of any screen habits you might have? Is it because of your inaction? Is it because of any shame, any sin in your life? Is it because of your hurt? That caring for our souls means moving towards community, and yet because we are broken and the world around us is broken, we actually are drifting towards, and we naturally drift towards, we don't necessarily even mean to, we drift towards loneliness and isolation. And just like Jesus did in Zacchaeus' life, our Heavenly Father wants to call you towards Him, towards a relationship with Him, and towards relationships with other people that you don't have to continue to drift towards isolation and loneliness, that he's with you and he wants to be in community. He wants you to be in community with others.